I'm an architect, and it really shocked me when I realized that the way that my profession was perceived by the world was you are the guys that are actually destroying nature to build concrete jungles. And that really changed the way that I perceived and brought me towards sustainability and more sustainable practice. And also the fact that as a father, I believe we have an obligation to live a better world for our descendants than the one that we receive from our ancestors. Welcome to another fantastic episode of the Zero Carbon Construction podcast by Zero Construct. My name is Matthew Jackson, and that was a great little snippet of what's coming up uh, from this episode. This is the second part of the two-parter where we recorded um, some great panel sessions. In fact, we had a whole afternoon of great presentations and, and panel sessions at the BIM Coordinator Summit in Dublin back in uh, September 2023. It was an amazingly warm day, but uh, that did not uh, shy people away from using a lot of energy during these debates and discussions. Then we thank you once again to Ralph and his team at the BIM Coordinator Summit for allowing uh, Zero Construct to come and be part of it and kind of really run the subject of Net Zero. So the second part uh, was one which I was really looking forward to. It's a juicy subject of how do we pay for this. One that I think the industry does come up against a lot is that we have these net zero targets coming up, but how are we going to pay for it or who pays for it? What is the process of, of, of moving money into this sort of uh, way in which we can pay for it through the instruments that we have so it's a fantastic uh, topic i'm joined again by Eamon shields from the sustainable energy authority of ireland chris jackson from esri and archie o'donnell from cosmos we're also joined by ross griffin from uh, cosmos this episode uh, again is sponsored by the bim coordinators summit brought to you by the bim heroes network and also the company arc docs you can hear more about them during the podcast of course all the information that we talk about um, and anybody that we mention as we've just mentioned right now will be available in the show notes so make sure you go and check them out we hope you're really enjoying these podcasts so please do make sure we leave a review tell a friend tell a colleague put it on your internal teams or slack and get everybody to listen it's growing in popularity and all we want to do is just spread the message around good education and understanding around reducing carbon in construction so let's go back over to dublin back in time a little bit back to september 2023 and uh, let's see if we actually worked out how we're going to pay for all this uh, welcome back everybody this is the final session of uh, the day uh, where we are going to be uh, debating and discussing how we're going to pay for the decarbonization of construction. It's a pretty open session in the way that, you know, I have a little bit of an agenda, but not really too much. The opening, uh, this, this to kind of give you why I'm asking this question, Institute of Civil Engineering, because at their sustainability event, which I was a panelist and a presenter for, people got a little bit upset that I didn't have all the answers. I didn't have the answers after my presentation of how we're going to pay for it. Yeah. 
and it kind of got me thinking because then I was asked the question during the panel. I had an eye infection at the time, so I was half crying out of one side, <laughs> like, like, like this. Um, and I've fumbled the question completely, and I've contemplated about it a lot since I kind of screwed it up. Um, and I think it's an interesting talking point, which is like, how, how are we going to pay for this? So it's, it's a broad question, and I'm kind of happy for opening, opening gambits and thoughts, starting with you, Chris. Okay. <laughs> Chris passes to Eamon. I love that. I'm thinking that Eamon's way more qualified than me to talk about I mean, this, at least start the discussion. I'll come in with, you know, jokes and perfect. anecdotes and what right, have you. Perfect. After you, Eamon. No pressure. Like, <laughs> thanks. Um, look, it's obviously being in the SEAI where we do a lot to kind of help people along the way, both on the domestic and the non-domestic side. Um, <clears throat> the reality is that we can't grant fund our way out of it. In like it just it just isn't financially. Like if you if you even look at the SMEs that we were talking about earlier on, so you've got say two hundred and thirty thousand odd, you know, um, businesses and most of them are SMEs. Like if you took a say it cost them, I don't know, a hundred grand to do all the things they need to do and we gave all of them thirty grand, when you start looking at those kind of calculations, it's um, it's a huge task. And then the reality is then, on the other side, is the supply chain element. So in terms of timelines, like if you even look at the installation of PV, for example, in Ireland, like we've get, there's a very good grant for PV for domestic and now for non-domestic as well. There's a huge amount of people applying, but in reality, it could possibly take you two to three months to get the, the offer and then two to three months to get it installed. So then you extrapolate that out to 20, 30 or further on. So I think in terms of paying for it, I think if you go back to the wedge that I was looking, I, probably people on here haven't, haven't seen the wedge, but like if you're looking at, I think in terms of the challenge there, is that we really need to start to think about, and again, this, this seminar, I know it's talking about the kind of BIM element of things, but the use of smart technology and dig digitalization in terms of low cost, big impact things that people can do on a personal level, I think that's a huge part of it. And if you take it along the way, like we were saying, like there will be an element of grant funding, but eventually regulations are going to come in. So the fact of the matter is, from an SEAI point of view, once a regulation engages, we can't grant fund that element anymore. So, for example, you know, if PV panels are probably going to be a requirement on buildings over a particular size, say after 2025, looking at the new EPBD. So once that happens, they're no longer eligible for us to give them money towards them solar PV. So I think in terms of who's going to pay for it, I think there's a large element where it's going to be a mix of, there will be a, an element of assistance until the regulations come in. But then when the regulations come in, I think there's a, there's a large amount of money washing around that people aren't aware of, whether it be the optimization of your building system, for example. The optimization of your building system, again, it's this use of smart technology. You're reducing your energy, you're gaining, and it's, it's looking at all those pockets of money that currently are sitting in there. Now, they're not being utilized. Again, it's back to this whole idea of carbon having a value. People are gonna start, I believe, to be, once we can link money to the carbon, people are going to start getting incentivized to do things. So money is going to 
there's, there's going to be elements there where people are going to gain an advantage. So it's the use of smart technology and the use of adding value to the carbon is going to encourage people. And money is going to, there's a lot of fat, I believe, in the construction industry at the minute and within buildings due to the operational use and the others. And that has to be sweated out of it because the reality is, and I don't like to say this obviously being from SEI, but realistically, handing people money isn't going to happen. There's going to be a regulatory requirement. So, and again, it's, and then it's, it's not like we dropped them once grant stop. It's all about assistance then. It's showing them where them pockets are. Just, just to compliment that, what if I said th there's al already the money available in the construction industry to do it? It's that we're so inefficient in how we deliver our projects. The budgets we're setting today will cover anything that we want to do in relation to sustainability because we're not able to deliver our projects in an efficient way. So it's all, the money's already there. What, we're, what we need to start looking at is how we deliver our projects more efficiently to release that capital for us to, to just reinvest in the sustainability uh, concept within are buildings. You, are you stating, Ross, that we're not building on time and to budget? Is this, is this yeah. what you're saying? Uh, uh, we can't, we can't cost control it's our outrageous. projects. Outrageous. Yeah. Yeah. Outrageous like, comment. Just to, just to that point, and I'll hand on to it, like, there was a KPMG report looking at a number of um, different countries and in terms that are their val gross value added per hour of work. And I think in Belgium, it was about 45, this is for the construction industry, it was about 45 euro. And in Ireland, now this was, these were earlier figures from 2015, it was 22 euro. So that totally feeds into what you're saying there. And again, it's the smart technology thing. Like, so again, we're here, we're looking at the BIM element. That element, so BIM, the BIM element, and then the modern methods of construction, the prefabbing, the factory-based systems, like the, and even from a social point of view, like in terms of gender balance and all this kind of stuff in terms of the construction industry, you bring in the BIM and the modern methods of construction, like gender balance, I don't care what anyone says, it's not as attractive being on a building site every day of the week, hammering stuff in for, for different genders. So the fact is, if it's a case that people can go to a controlled environment such as a factory, and end up doing things that they love that otherwise they felt excluded from. So the BIM and the modern methods of construction. They're also not cold and wet by being in a factory, which is which is a massive, exactly, massive yeah, exactly. game. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's a fair point. Yeah, we shouldn't be constructing anymore. We don't construct, we manufacture. The only thing about it is, is that we, we kind of assemble everything on site in small, minute uh, elements. We need to move all that off site and try to build in modularize our, our construction. The Danes do it very well when it comes to residential and, and, and hotels. It's all modularized, it's all precast. Yes, precast construction is concrete. We understand we understand that it's not good for the environment, but green concrete might solve that solution so far. But that's what they do. And in Ireland we build multi-story, multi-unit apartments the same way we build the extension to our house. We bring in the timber, we construct it, there's there's teams on site hammer nails. Madness, absolute madness. Um, so I've <laughs> I will add a little bit to this, but first of all, for anyone that was in the previous discussion and I was mentioning about Vietnam and the forecast of when it might be underwater, I do want to put a, a clarification point out there, actually a correction. It's not the whole of Vietnam, it's the southern part of Vietnam, including Saigon, to be fair, so it's still very serious. It's still the major population It's center. still the major population center, but it's not the whole of Vietnam, so I want to put that clarifier. I've, and I've since found the link. But I, I think the points actually have been already well made. There, there's so much inefficiency in the way that we currently work, and that has to be a large part of the funding, you know, because it's... 
you know, it, was, it was somebody mentioned it earlier on in a, in a conversation. Uh, it was Clive from Planally was saying, we go into a shop, we buy something, we pay for it. You know, in the construction industry, you might get paid in 75 days or 90 days or whatever. You're getting paid for doing rework. You're getting paid for wastage. You're getting paid for unproductive work on site. Yeah, exactly. It's, we're, like we're the, it's like the cartoon of the boats, which the small boat is uh, original order, and then the big boat is change order. <laughs> right, yeah, exactly right? that. Because yeah. you make more money through fuck-ups than you do from actually original delivery. Yeah, So, and, and listen, I, am not, I have not worked in the construction industry, or in the, I'm not a civil engineer, I'm a geographer, and I take an outside-in view of these things. But it does seem to me as this, that there are massive inefficiencies in the way that we currently build so are we and, saying and think about building as well. So are we, are we generally saying that um, from a productivity perspective, you should, you should just be able to build better with what you have on, on, on first order, which is, which is compared to other industries, and we'll jump over to Archie in a second. There's a, there was a report by McKinsey and The Economist quite a while ago now, I think like 2018, 2017, where it basically mapped productivity gains of all major industries since 1947. So if you look at agriculture, it's at 16x. So they produce 16x more output today than they did in 1947. Manufacturing is 8x. Construction is 1.1x. So we have improved by 10% as an industry since 1947 compared to manufacturing, which is 800% improvement. So, I mean, you know, it's all that bricklaying. I'm not, don't, don't, not having a go at brickies, they're fantastic, by the way, but it, it, is, it, is, it is a very manual, slow, old-fashioned way to build a building. Archie? Yeah, I was just going to say about productivity. What, what, what we're seeing with some more sophisticated organizations that are starting to consider carbon is that they're actually starting to price carbon, not at what it costs them now, but what it's likely to cost them in, in five years' time. So they're adding a shadow price. And even just changing that price of carbon from 40 to 120 euros per tonne completely changes the whole dynamics of their decision-making. So just to clarify there, just, just for a second, are you talking about the taxonomy of carbon output? as a business, is, is, this, is this what you're getting at or, or something else? Well, not, not quite sure about that, but the way that, that you would usually see it is there's a, a cost-benefit equation for these organizations that they can tolerate a certain uplift in cost for equipment, uh, you know, for the equipment or for renewables or for technology or for, for certain decisions they make, but they want to see that that has a return over a certain number of years. So that cost balance equation at, 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 at 40, say the, if you have a um, 40 euro price of, of carbon, that has very little influence on your decision making. Uh, you know, changing out some of your mechanical equipment might have a payback of, you know, 12 years. It's not very favorable. But when you change the carbon cost of that, um, it can start to bring that down to seven or eight years, which is a no-brainer. So uh, th that's kind of the, the, the calculus that's starting to come into this now. And when we talk about where the incentives and where the regulations are, I think in a way, they're all incidental. They'll happen in the background. But I think having better control of uh, information related to the viability or the feasibility of certain technologies, certain materials. I think, uh, as, you, as, as, as Eamon said there, 
you know, you can't, you can't control what you can measure. And that's what's important. And actually just, you know, you'll find that the balance between something that's um, on the cost side or on the benefit side of the, the, the graph, the difference between that can change fundamentally when the price of finance changes or when, you know, other parameters change, like the investment horizon. Is someone want to flip this in five years? They're not going to think about it. But if someone has to build and operate uh, this building, particularly residential, say, if someone is, is built to rent and they're going to hold that investment for 15 years and sell that as a going concern in 15 years, they're thinking out, um, they're looking at investment decisions that have 20 years. And that's when you start, start having to zoom out, as the geographers would, you need to zoom out from just the building and think about the whole campus, the whole city district, and say, okay, I've got one building here that um, uses a huge amount of hot water. It's a residential building. Right beside it is a commercial building that needs cooling even in winter. Why don't I trade off? I'll swap, you know, I'll give you my heat if you give me that 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 water coming back cold so I can use it for cooling. And those trade-offs and that kind of district impact is, is another thing we can learn learn from the Danes, you know? Sorry, yeah, there was just there was just one thing and it's it's just, I, I'd mentioned it before and it's a bit it's a it's an example of the wastage. Like and it's this whole cat eating again. So essentially ten thousand meter squared office block, fully fitted out with fan coils all the M&E services, LED lighting, just an open plan, fire alarm, everything's fitted out to the last, all the fine calls, everything. The M&E designer has designed that system because he's been ordered by the QS to design it as basically as possible or he needs to hit a price point. So he puts in 15 massive fan coils to technically heat and cool that space. The ceiling grid goes in, he puts in all the standard lights across the whole thing. That that then, and the fact is, if it was a shell and core, what would happen is, if a, if a tenant asked for the shell and core, they would get a bag of money of what that cadet would have cost from the riser out and get handed it, and then would put in what they wanted. But what happens is, he goes ahead and does that, and then the tenant comes in, when you strip back, and the other thing is, they say it, it, it shortens the program. It doesn't shorten the program because as soon as you need to order one fan coil different, and typically they're all too big, so 90% of those fan coils are gone, and you need 25 small fan coils because you have loads of cellular offices. So the time for an order in a fan coil, once you need one, one different, the timeline's the same, and I'm sure there's glass and partitions and everything else that's going to be needed. So. That is just, just skips and skips the wastes that goes out. And even from a logical perspective, you're talking about cost. From a tenant's point of view, that per, the landlord has essentially, it's like the equivalent of walking into a restaurant and you're sitting down and they hand you your dinner. And you go, what's this? And they say, oh, it's chicken and chips. And you go, I'm yeah, I'm vegetarian. I didn't want that. Well, will you eat the chips? Oh, yeah, I'll probably have the chips, all right, yeah, okay. So uh, they bring it back, they leave the chips, then they bring you out your vegetarian option, then they go, that's going to be 25 euro. And you're like, but if you would have walked in before they started cooking it, he could have handed you 23 euro, you would have added two euro to get exactly what you wanted. Like, that is a huge lump of money. So for, in terms of money, in terms of timelines, in terms of 
embodied carbon, that simple process that happens purely because an agent says, actually, you don't want to walk into a shell and car. And this is a perfect example. You can walk in now and stick a VR headset on their head and they can walk around and you can show them what their fit out would look like. Never mind the big blank open plan office that it's not going to look like anyway. Sorry, I get a bit emotional when I talk about that. <laughs> the BIM Coordinators Summit is an international community of BIM heroes and leading AEC professionals in architecture, engineering, construction, property, real estate and infrastructure asset management who are dedicated to advancing the use of digital technologies within the built environment. They believe that the improved quality of information and integration of digital tools and processes, including building information modeling, can significantly improve productivity, outcome, safety, and sustainability in the planning, design, construction, and management of the built environment, which ultimately has a huge impact on all of humanity. Connect with BIM Heroes at bimhero.io, that's bimhero.io, to be part of this international movement to transform AEC. This podcast was recorded at the BIM Coordinator Summit in Dublin, which is held every year, but there's also an international virtual conference, which is also held. So make sure you check out that link and that network, which will be available in the show notes. Sorry, I get a bit emotional when I talk about <laughs> So, I mean, so one of the other kind of debate points which I was going to pick up on upon is that the construction industry has gone through a major transition before. And if you look at the 80s and 90s, um, I was still at school then, I can arrogantly say, was the health and safety movement, right? So, so there was a point in which we realized that uh, humans hurting themselves on site is not acceptable at some point. Now, it took us a long time to get there, unfortunately. And one of the, one of the uh, pieces of research that uh, came out of, uh, of MIT recently is they, they worked out how much tonnage of carbon will cause one death in the future. And that tonnage is about 4,500 tonnes. So, uh, if anybody is working on the line project, because I've done the math, um, the amount of embodied carbon going into the line in Saudi Arabia will cause, in the future, 300,000 deaths. That's a direct correlation, right? So from a cost perspective, and I presented this at, uh, at a conference uh, to very um, unsatisfied faces, shall we say, because, because that, from a, a concept perspective, we, we, we installed health and safety because we wanted to protect our site. And we're still doing that globally. St deaths still happen and injuries still happen on site due to lax health and safety, usually. But someone had to pay for that. And who? So, and uh, my, from my understanding, it was just passed on to the customer, right? So is there just a natural sort of like, well, if we did it like health and safety, we'll just charge the government more money to build buildings. Is that, is that an easy out? That's that's currently what's happening, isn't it? Like, if you want to build a sustainable a sustainable building, if it's if it's lead gold or platinum, there's a cost associated with that. So what's happening is that cost is passed on to the client, but it's then been passed on to whoever runs the building, whether it's a lease or whatever, because now companies are looking for more sustainable buildings. But I would say, going back to your health and safety, health and safety be became legislated, and 
and company owners were getting fined, hurting their pocket. Some of them were getting imprisoned because of that issue. So it was affecting the companies that kind of during construction, the consultants, the contractors, etc. The same thing will happen for carbon. They will, it will become legislated that you need to hit the targets. If you don't hit the targets, your building won't go ahead, like what's going to happen in, in January, right? Doing your LCA calculations like happening in Denmark. If you don't hit your targets, that building doesn't go ahead. So the entire industry is going to move in that way, I would say. At least that's my opinion of it anyway. Yeah, no, it's like, I think in terms of the health and safety analogy, like, I suppose... To some degree, there's still, like you'll see when you walk sites, you'll still see fellas who, and, and don't get, like it's a, it's like night and day compared to what it was 20 years ago, but you'll still see on a personal level fellas doing ridiculous things without glasses on because they don't like, because it sweats their eyes or something. like. So I think the regulation is a big reason why the health and safety thing came in. I think in terms of, if you're trying to, if, if you were looking to bring people on, possibly the the kind of impression of smoking maybe these days is kind of something that, that if you could get it to the point where people, where people, as opposed to, like, the regulatory thing obviously works, but, like, the aim, I think it would be great if the kind of, you know, I know this is a long shot, but, like, where someone flagrantly doing things that obviously generates ridiculous amounts of CO2 has, has the impression of somebody who's smoking in the car with their kid. Like, I had a teacher that used to smoke in class when I was in school years ago. Or when you used to go to the cinema, the whole of the cinema was full. Like, it was just, you could barely see the screen. Like, so, like, there's a kind of an impression there. Like, I think changing, I suppose, changing regulations or changing minds, I suppose, is the kind of, is the kind of two things that can happen there. But really, in terms of, like, the industry knows that it needs to happen. Like, there's that creme tool out at the minute where all these large investment funds are essentially typing in their details and it's going saying, well, that building is going to be a stranded asset in 2028. That one's going to be a stranded asset in 2029. So it's either, like you're either changing minds, you're regulating it, or you're linking it, like we talked, to money. They're the kind of ways that you can, obviously the change of minds would be a great way to do it, but, you know, again, it's the distance of it compared, to, compared to health and safety. Like you say to somebody, doesn't have that, like I say, somebody doesn't have their hair head on. Do you want to go home to your kids today? Like, what happens if something falls in your head? You're not going to go home. Like, that's a, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a real, it's a, you know, whereas, you know, if somebody's doing something stupid and you go up and say, man, what about the planet? He's <laughs> just thinking, well, it's half ten, I need to get this finished. Will you go? You know, so it's that kind of question, but I think mines, money, or regulation are the kind of, are the kind of ways to it. I completely agree with all of that. I mean, it's, it seems to me that there is no more money. There's no more, that, you know, you, you ask, how do we pay to do it? Well, where does the money come from? You know, so that there's a philosophical argument really there about, well, how, how does anything get paid for, that, especially when you want to make such a significant change? So the money is the money. Um, there is an example, I'm trying to tie a few strands together here, Matthew, so go with me on this, go right? Ahead, go ahead. Um, so Balfour Beatty Vinci, joint venture in the UK working on the high-speed two rail infrastructure project. And they've started using technology to solve a problem, which is the speed at which they collect information about stockpiles, right? So there you, we have some technology that enables you to do drone flight planning and drone collection of data and then analysis of it using geospatial technology. They've estimated they could save about five million quid. 
over a few years because it's faster for them to collect. You know, they're collecting volumetric information in 20 minutes instead of two days, right? So there's an economic output, which they could use to then pay for decarbonizing something else. So let's say that some of the money's moving around, right? But then there's also a health and safety outcome because there's no longer you know, a massive team of engineers going out with ranging poles, climbing up 10 meter stockpiles, putting themselves at risk. So their, their risk management score goes down and their number of incidents on site also comes down. So that's a good outcome. Um, and then their carbon footprint comes down because there's fewer trucks going around with loads of people in them going out on site and it's just a drone and you're done. So that's a mindset thing, you know? And Eamon's point's well made. It's either mindset or it's regulation or it's moving the money around, I think is the way to do it. And the sooner that the owner operators are creating the conditions, whether it's regulatory or whether it's just in their statement of requirements, you know, the, the employees information, the exchange information requirement, whatever it might be, to say, no, you will work in this way if you want the work. So do you want the work or not? Okay, sharpen your pencils because you're going to have to think differently about how you estimate for this piece of work. But by using technology in that way, and, you know, I, I'm a techno technology geek, so I'm bound to say that that's part of the answer. But I, I genuinely think that it is because we're still stuck in our old mindset of doing things the way we've always done them well, and expecting a different outcome, which is the definition of madness. Yeah. I mean, I mean, and, and you're 100% right, because I mean, like, if, if you look at what technology does, and obviously we're moving into an AI age now, we've only been in it a few months, what you're basically saying is money saved through productivity gain there because you've saved time, which saves money, which means that you can then invest that money into something more useful, which goes back to what we were discussing earlier about the fact that, and I still, I still think it's insane, that the fact that tier one contractors basically make one to 2% margin on building. Yeah, yeah. Now, the reason that they're happy with that, of course, is because they're guaranteed the money um, anyway, and if they, you do 10 billion pound worth of work, you know, 2%, you know, shouldn't be sniffed at. But that's why you don't get the the money going, going. But, but that's, a, that's a crazy level. One or 2% is ridiculous. No one should get out of bed in the morning for that. But to come back to, uh, to one of the points there, I, I think regulation is going to enforce the, the mind shift change. If we wait for the mind shift change, as you say, it's never going to happen. But I'll put it out to anybody here. Who takes their first meeting with, with uh, new contacts face-to-face -face anymore? Does anybody do it? No. We don't. We use technology for it. But COVID has enforced that on us. We were put in a situation that COVID kind of forced us to now take on online meetings, you know? But we don't do it anymore. We use technology. So we, the possibilities are there. The technology is there. It's just we as, as humans haven't got our head around it yet. I completely agree with you. The only thing that I'll add as a little sidebar is that, of course, the cost of the technology has a carbon cost. And especially in that example that I gave, it's storing you know, terabytes, petabytes worth of information that's used throughout the construction project. So it's, it's helpful all the way through. It's not just a, a point solution in one moment in time, but there's a carbon cost of the storage of that. So we need to make sure that that's added in. Which is fine if it's counted, because I mean, like we, exactly. we the, the, yeah. that technology already exists where you can have companies who, who basically measure, I mean, you can, you can, you can write down and, and store how much it costs to send an email, like yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. zero point zero zero two kilograms or grams of, of 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 CO two, right? But then that's still a lot less than sending a carrier pigeon, uh, you know, with a scroll on their foot because you know 
bird isn't shitting all over the place. And, you know, it's, it's, it's like one of those things where, like, I mean, the it's, again, alone as, is, yeah, yeah, methane alone. I mean, as long as it's counted, it's okay. I mean, like, as long as it's not hidden, it's that transparent sort of like, I'm doing a thing, um, that thing is costing me X carbon. Then when I do that thing again, can I, can I get that carbon down? Like that's 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 basically, and that and that could be the fact that yeah I'm sending 900 emails per project rather than a thousand emails per project or maybe use a CDE which is just a more efficient way of sending digital communication across a design team and probably saves carbon. It could be a minuscule amount, but it doesn't really matter. The fact of the matter is it's saved and productivity goes up. Archie, I I think the danger here though is that. When we talk about carbon and sustainability, we could fall into the trap that hampered BIM in its initial stage, that we get very good at talking among ourselves, but we can't explain it to grandma, you know? And like, I think that what's going to drive this more than anything, especially from a cost point of view, is risk, that investors are afraid that there is a carbon crunch coming down the tracks they don't understand it, but they know it's a pain point. They know it's difficult. And there was an old uh, cartoon as well that, you know, it was, what, what was it? What happens if we educate our staff and they leave and go somewhere else? And the guy turns around, well, what happens if we don't educate them and they stay? You know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a little bit like that for, for carbon as well. It's not, you know, what happens if we make if we have to pay to make better buildings, do we get better returns? That's not the conversation. The conversation that's happening out there with the change makers and decision makers is more about what happens if you don't do this? And Eamon said, they're already out there looking, they have really simple tools that'll say, that that office, that shiny office block that you have there, that's going to hit the buffers in 2030. That's going to strand because you could have done something simple like, um, reduce your fossil fuel and electrify and you could piggyback a decarbonized grid you could actually you know you could put that on a glide path to zero but you didn't because you were looking out for the pennies and, and you weren't thinking about the big picture you could have saved the pounds you know and I think that's why I think sometimes architects and engineers are quite myopic at looking at this stage we got to get to planning we got to get to tender we got to get value engineering with the contractor and they don't step back. And I think the Danes are very good at that. Like they, they, the decisions that they made, that they're making now are based on plans that they made in the 70s and they stick to them. And I think that's, you know, like that's Chris as a geographer is able to kind of pull back and zoom out and say, guys, as an industry, do you know, this is what's important, you know? And, and I think we can't lose sight of that. That's what's important here. We can't be talking about, you know, equipment and materials and carbon. We just got to say, like, guys, there's a big, big risk if we don't get this right. This is only going one way. We gotta, we gotta jump on this now, and we have to talk the language that it's, it's simple. You know, it's simplicity. It's do this, or there's a carbon crunch coming. There's a pain point coming. Yeah. Yeah. Just a, just a couple of. ArcDocs is Ireland's leading BIM consultancy practice, offering advice, production, training, and supporting services to help individuals, companies, project teams in the building or infrastructure sector to implement digital information management to ISO 19650 series of standards. 
They have over 14 years of professional experience in implementing building information modeling across a wide range of businesses and projects. The team at ArcDocs bring a unique insight into the digital transformation of architecture, engineering, construction, property, real estate, and infrastructure asset management. Connect with the ArcDocs team at arcdocs.com and let the experience become your benefit. The link can be found in our show notes. And just personally, I would like to thank the ArcDoc team, that's Ralph Montague, for being part and organizing the BIM Heroes and, of course, the BIM Coordinator Summit. His entire team do a fantastic job, and I really recommend you go and check out their amazing work. Do this, or there's a carbon crunch coming, there's a pain point coming. Just a, just a couple of points, I suppose, just back to the whole money element. Like, the whole, the whole area, there's, there's a whole industry forming around... Just turn, they've just turned the air conditioning on. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm not sure they wanted to shut up or... Uh, but keep going, Eamon. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. keep going. Flashing the light just, version you know. of, a, of a conference, obviously. Project. Um, so, if we, like... Like, in terms of, uh, like how things like there's a whole industry forming around helping people finance like there's there's whole there's a whole industry there that understands the wastage that's going on on the operators on the operations Janie coffee's ready on on the, on the it's <laughs> done on the opera, operational side of the carbon element like you, you talk about what the problem is there there's industries out there so for example there's um on the, on the building management side, there's uh, companies out there who have an AI version, which basically goes in, it doesn't touch any of your existing BMS. It's an intelligent system that sits on top of your BMS, and once they've analyzed your building, they drop that onto your BMS, and that operates your BMS, basically changing for all different parameters. They will guarantee you a 15, they'll, they'll guarantee you a saving per month, and you sign a contract with them, and if it doesn't make that saving, they make up the difference. And it's the same with energy performance contracting as just, well. Just so a BMS is a building management system. Oh, yeah. so just, 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 and at saving the acronym. Yeah. Uh, no. Sorry, apologies. And it's the same with energy performance contracting as well. You have companies coming in saying, "We'll put solar panels on your roof. You will save. You pay. You, we'll, you will save this much overall. We're going to take ten percent of that." Like this. There's all sorts of stuff going on. It's a whole separate industry. I have, uh, I have one for you. There's a company in Denmark called uh, Energy Machine. They will supply and install your systems for free. For free, because they're generating the energy and electrical of those systems and feeding it back into the grid. So it's energy as a service. That's where, that's where we're going, energy as a service. They'll maintain it for the next 30 years for you, no problem. And it's, yeah, it's, re it's really good stuff. The problem that they're having is is when they speak to people, people can't get, can't understand. Yeah. Well, what about the risk for me if I hand over my part of the building to you? Like, what do we do with that? And the FM facilities are looking at going, yeah, but that means you guys will come in and maintain it. Yeah, it's our system. You're renting it off us, you know, and we're feeding back into the grids. It's, it's really good stuff. Yeah, yeah. Now that, like, something similar happened in the UK. Now, this was more of a grant where the, the feed, it was a really generous feed-in tariff that came in for uh, feeding back into the grid. This is about 12 years ago. They had to cut it back because essentially what happened was it was financially viable for PV installers to fill roofs. They were going to warehouses and saying, we'll fill your roof with PV. You can have all the energy. So you can, we'll fill your roof. With, you can have all the energy. And we'll, so 
there was a rate that you got for generating a kilowatt hour. You didn't even have to feed it. You got more if you fed it in, but if you generated it, you got a certain rate per kilowatt hour. So it was financially viable for them. To, they go to a warehouse and say, I'll fill your roof with PV, you can have all the energy, and we're done. You just need to say that Which we can have Which is mad. That's a mad business. Yeah. But that's why, that's why about six months in, they realized investment funds were paying companies to buy 50, 60, 70 acres of land out in prime Yorkshire area because they were like, well, we could just, let's just start filling everything with PV. And, you know, so then they reduced it to 50 kilowatts in the morning and all them companies disappeared. But, like, that's a kind of, uh, wouldn't be advising on that. But that's another place, where, on the operational side, that's another place where the... But, I mean, I mean, but what we're touching on there is like the grand old argument of CapEx versus OpEx, right? I mean, like, the capital expenditure... So, you know, we've done a number of projects where, where you know, you go, and, you go and speak to the client and you will set up a meeting when you start talking about, you know, total cost of ownership, TCO or, you know, life cycle assessment or whatever, whatever acronym you want to give it. Okay, well, CapEx, should, should we speak to OpEx to kind of have an understanding of how we're going to fund this building o- over time? And 90% of the time, those people have never met each other. Which is insane. I mean, it's it's totally mental because if if I kind of have this, uh, and I'm, I will accept a counterpoint uh, uh, after this, I kind of accept that if we actually spent twice as much building buildings, so we actually built high quality, energy efficient, high quality product buildings, made from you know all the parts are made from good manufacturers you know this stuff lasts a long time it's like it's basically grandma's washing machine that lasts 70 years you will spend less money on the 50-year estimated lifespan which is what government gives us by the way if you build a school it should last 50 years that's your that's your calcs we'll spend less do you agree absolutely and that's a that's a i suppose a kind of a mild a mild estimate i'd say more than anything and like the thing about it is, as well, it's the, it's the time of intervention. I think you're, um, you were talking about lead earlier on. So there's a really basic calc and a, a really basic graph, and it probably shows the same. Matt McDonald, who I would have done a lot of lead projects with, like they have a basic graph that shows when you decide you want to do lead, depends on how much lead is going to cost. Not in terms of the overall, just like in terms of the overall project because it's the fact that when are the decisions being made. So if you bring in the lead consultant at the start, the changes that they advise for you to achieve lead gold are a fraction of what they are when you're almost, when, you're in, when the, deci- the client has decided something or you're in the middle of the design. Or you're, so there is the material element, but again, it's that holistic, that holistic thing and, and, the, and the element that I think somebody talked about tenants as well, how, it's the tenants that take over the buildings, which is a major issue that we have and nobody can seem to crack it, is the split incentive issue that we have with buildings, where basically the landlord owns it, the tenant is in it, they obviously don't own the building, but they're paying for the running of the building. So you have landlords who are saying, well, I don't really care if it runs efficiently because they're the ones paying the bill. And then you have potentially, but or you have potentially landlords who have an interest and all their tenants are like, oh, I've no interest. So this split incentive element, which is a huge problem in Ireland and I think in a lot of countries. We've, we've solved that in Sweden, actually. So the way it works in Sweden is that, so, so most of us in Sweden, in cities, we live in apartment blocks. Um, uh, so take my building. So my building is 26 apartments. As... 
as as a leaseholder, because you know, I, I only own I own my bit, my my square meterage. The walls are belong to the building. Um, I own a percentage of the building, which is according to the square meterage of the overall square meterage of the building. So the way that that, that we do it is that um, I pay my mortgage, but every month I pay my my arvift, which is the the fees to run the building. But I own the building, so I I have a board seat and a vote. And we have an AGM every year, and we discuss and debate how much money is in the account. We're profitable as a business because the building is a business. And then we go, okay, well, how are the windows doing? Well, the windows had a 20... It's, and actually, they're up for new, renewal soon because they're about 25 years old, 30 years old. They're not efficient anymore. So it's like, okay, do we have enough money in, in the accounts to pay for new windows? And that is a discussion that's had by the tenants because we own the building. We run the building, so right? So, and, that, and that's... Post. Yeah. Okay. So it's shared ownership of... Build, I own my apartment, but then I also own a share of the building because I own the apartment. So there's no evil landlord, Dr. Evil kind of guy just sitting with his hands rubbing together going, it's great, they're just paying for everything, I don't care. Mm. Like, it doesn't, that's not a thing. But if you're us. renting, so like it's, it's, a, it's a big element in, in the office market over here, so you might have, like tenants might have a 10-year lease of the, so the landlord still kind of owns yeah, that the whole thing. Commercial, that commercial's still like that. Yeah, the, that, commercial, that commercial element is an issue, but um, yeah. That's a really good system, by the way. I must it is. It is starting to change, though, with uh, leases and contracts driven by some of the more evolved, um, uh, some of the more, you know, mature blue chip companies. I'm just listening to the conversation here, and I keep just coming back to mindset. You know, I love the reference to Grandma's washing machine. You know, because the manufacturer had a longer term view, designed and thought through in a way that meant that it was engineered to last whereas also there was a capitalist incentive for 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 everybody to make stuff faster and we were measured on how much we can sell whereas now we have legislation coming in on things like right to repair that that stuff is now coming back in exactly so it's back to the future Uh, movie references folks Um, but but it is there is a bit of that isn't there that we we have to step back and think listen the way that we're living isn't working we know we know we're on a timeline and we actually know if if you spend any time thinking about it you, you do arrive at the conclusion that we sort of know what we need to do so we're back to well how does it get paid for it gets paid for through legislation and people people you know you want people to do the right thing don't you? You want politicians to do the right thing. When did a politician ever do the right thing in recent times? That's a there's, rhetorical there's, question. There's, well, the answer is no, obviously. <laughs> um, but but it sounds as if to me in Denmark and in Sweden as well, there is a different mindset. There's already an acknowledgement that we have to think differently to solve these problems. It's a little bit of socialism. You keep is that what you're going to say? Yeah. No, but it, it, it is. It's, it's, it's socialist capitalism or capitalist socialism, whichever way you want to flip it, because it's, that, it's finding that, that, that marriage be- between the two. Those countries are not anti-capitalism. They're not anti... You can't not make money. Of course you can make money, but it's also like, how do you use that money for societal gain right. to so, ensure you know, everybody benefits? So I prefer to, instead of thinking of it as a capitalist socialist dilemma i prefer to think of it as a sustainable di- a sustainable question do we want to have a meaningful existence into the next 50 years 
And are we prepared to make the decisions now that will ensure that that unfolds and, and, and happens? But right? unfortunately, people say no to that. Exactly, exactly. But why? Because they haven't, but the realization isn't there. And it's and it because it's confusing and yeah. there's not enough information and well we, we asked the question before do you do you do you want to give up your car do you want to yeah. stop like, life is very simple the way I'm living it right now yeah you know go out at the weekend take my car to work every day look yeah. after my family do yeah. my yeah. you know my my holidays in Thailand once a year you know go shop shop online you know three days a week get it delivered very simple not mm. uncomplicated mm. why are you complicating my life now <laughs> why why are you saying that I yeah. can't drive my car, I can't go to Thailand, I can't shop online three, three days a week, I can only maybe do it once, maybe I can't even shop online, I need to shop locally. Yeah. Why are you complicating my life? I know. And, and what is going to compel people to move away from that linear, linear thinking? And what's going what's to help to change people's mindset to think, actually, if we continue down this path, well, you, I, you, you turn and ask the question, well, what kind of life do you want your kids to live? Well, we'd like them to live one, we'd like them to which live. could be one answer. Which but that answer kind of gets back and goes, oh, God. Like, yeah, yeah, that's the kind of... <laughs> so, look, we've, we're, we're coming up to, like, 10 minutes to go. Um, does anybody in the audience, or would anybody like to make a point or ask a question to the panel? Yeah, we have, well, at least we have one to start with. A couple of notes that I've been taking from some things that you guys have been commenting. Um, I do tend to agree that the money is already there in the industry, but, the fa but I disagree that the fact that we became efficient in the way that we build will actually free up the money to be reinvested to pay for decarbonization. Because what's going to happen, I think, is that even if you implement uh, effective construction measures and you reduce waste, because the way the system is geared up, you will just give more money for the people that are already given money. That money... Unless there is something that forces you to put the money back into the system, it will never happen. Exactly. Yeah. So legislation, that's where we're Correct. going. Legislation needs to, needs to come in place in order to be able to do that. And that's where I think that uh, legislation like the LCA requirements and more sustainability requirements will force developers to now rethink. And the solution to that rethinking is, you know, efficiency, efficiency, efficiency. Uh, I think also the one possible solution is actually liability. You were talking about the idea of uh, you were monitoring efficiency and if you're not getting what you should get, then you get fined. But put it this way, if I'm a developer, I have zero benefits in building something that is effective if I don't own the asset on the long run. Because as we were saying on the previous uh, discussions on the panel, it's like you always get into your the point where I'm going to do this building and the cost is going to be compared with the previous building version or version of the building that I did and because I'm taking um, a green approach or sustainable approach is going to cost me extra. Until we reverse that equation, we'll never be able to actually square this out because it's as simple as that. It's like, if, you, if it costs more, why do you do it at the end of the day? Not so much to answer the if it costs more question, but the reason that I would expect developers and designers and urban planners and engineers to start to put forward more sustainable designs is because otherwise they will start to lose work. So if you, you know, CEOs care about making a shit ton of money, staying out of jail and outflanking the competition, 
That's all that keeps them awake at night. How do I make more money or how do I outflank the competition or how do I stay out of jail? So the legislation compliance thing takes care of the staying out of jail. So if you've got to do it in a certain way, then that's fine. But outflanking the competition or, or not losing market share is equally compelling a reason to do things differently because otherwise somebody else will come along and do it for you. If you're not looking after your customer, someone else does it. It's the oldest saying in the book, you know, someone else will start to offer that different service and start to win. And that maybe is another catalyst for change. I would also say that uh, we should, we should kind of segregate the industry a little bit here and split it. The public sector, the public authority are the biggest investor in every single country. They're the biggest asset owner. Let's start with them. The private sector will end up following because they'll have no choice. So it's the public authorities that need to step up and take lead and charge here in, in this process. It's the same with digitization. It's the same with BIM. It's the same with all of that. You know, because everybody in the industry is all affected by the public authority. We all work within public buildings, all of that stuff. So we'll, everybody will move together in one uh, direction. I totally agree. I actually had a note on that. It's like the legislators tend to act where they see the benefit of acting, right? It's like a, a legislator will tend to, because of the system that we have implemented, democracy that is, as Winston Churchill was saying, is the best of the worst systems that we have, of course. But the logic is self-preservation, right? So if I see that there is a tent and I can gain some benefit, I will act on it, correct? And so they will do the legislation that will do the, to benefit them. For that, we'll need a more informed general population that actually push for that. But I do believe that, as you were saying, walk the talk, right? If you want to make the change, like we did, for instance, the UK example with BIM, the decision that UK made to let's implement and enforce BIM informed a new industry, created the possibility for the UK to become a world leader in terms of um, framework, uh, governance for BIM and all of these things. Because there was a vision that was led by, we need to save this money. If there is the same vision from a government to say, we, we are going to do this because it's right and because it's the only way that we will exist in the future, otherwise the planet is gone, you will create the market on its own. Because you have, as you were saying, the investment power to make that change. But I think also, and just to conclude this, I'm an architect and it really shocked me when I realized that the way that my profession was perceived by the world was you are the guys that are actually destroying nature to build concrete jungles. And that really changed the way that I perceived and brought me towards sustainability and more sustainable practice. And also the fact that as a father, I believe we have an obligation to live a better world for our descendants than the one that we receive from our ancestors. And that's, I think, is the key thing. It needs to change and it starts with you, each one of us. Well, that goes back, very well put. Um, and I think, I think it goes back a little bit to what I was saying earlier about um, as construction professionals, uh, we have an immense amount of power compared to the average human citizen where we can have huge positive impact for the decisions that we make on carbon reduction. Because, you know, as, as you said, as an architect, you are making decisions 
And, uh, th and this is one of the things that I love about construction. I don't think there's many other industries in the world where the impact of the work that you do today will outlast your lifetime. Th th there are not many because softwares come and go, products come and go, buildings kind of stay. You know, they do stay a long time, well beyond usually the original design brief. And therefore, like, we have this really cool kind of like, you know, it's like, you know, my dad was a um, building services en engineer. And he's, when we're in London, he still goes, oh, I worked on that. Still, he's retired. I mean, he hasn't worked for years. But there's that, there's that sense of pride within our... With our and we forget about that. Like, we, we genuinely actually forget that actually construction, is, considering the amount of problems that we have of productivity and car, it's still a pretty freaking cool industry because you do have this longevity of, of influence. So I think that that, that, that social pressure um, will come in. And the original point I was going to make was, I think also the consumer is changing. Now, it goes back to what you said, Rosmi, maybe not changing fast enough, that personal kind of way. But the consumer is changing in many, many markets around the world in kind of the things that we buy. You know, the consumer is moving to a more flexitarian consumption of food. But then also when you think about fashion and... And there was an interesting um, listening to uh, the Pubcast, which is a podcast uh, by uh, Joe Politics. I don't know if you heard of Joe Politics. It's like a young person's left-leaning. And they had a guy on there who talked about, well, there's five things that you can do. And one of them, we were talking about fashion. And he was like, you, at the moment, on average, the average American buys 50, 50 new garments per annum. Right? Now, a T-shirt uses about 2,000 litres of water-ish in countries where there's not a lot of clean water. You can buy three a year. You're allowed to buy three. And they actually worked out. You're allowed to take a short-haul flight holiday once every three years and a long-haul flight. So they're not saying don't do stuff, but actually, like, that's your, that's your barrier of behaviour. And a lot of people were like, yeah, I could do that. It's all right. It's not, it's not, it's not too shabby. Wait, do you think you're allowed to buy unlimited amounts of recycled clothes, by the way, or like vintage clothes? Like you can buy as much as you want. Secondhand guitars. So I think I think there is that. Uh, guitars. So there is like a, you know, I think there's a consumer change. Well, so that consumer pressure kind of comes. We got to wrap up, but you can make a quick. Really, just to add to your point, Matthew, that the other thing that we can all do as citizens is stop voting for people that don't understand the problem right and i know it's a desperately political statement and i'm not that political but what i observe is even local government elections people continuing to behave in ways that are not going to help in the long term and politicians are probably the short-termist mindset people that, that we know right so they are not going to help unless they understand the problem. So let's all just agree to stop voting for politicians that don't understand the problem. Sorry, I'll make this uh, relatively quick. Out of what I, um, I did work for a developer for about a decade, by the way, so I didn't agree with everything you said. I think the one aspect that I didn't hear you talk about is really, and I missed some of the start, is ESG and where funds are boycotting buildings that aren't going to be, not to mind seen as green, but actually going to be green in 5, 10, 15 years. I've seen deals collapse in the last yeah. probably 12, 18 months as a direct result of ESG credentials not being in the right place, buildings not having the right philosophy behind them. 
So I'd ask the panel, have they, because the legislation is one aspect, but actually the money flow coming to the, to the market, I see that as a bigger deterrent for developers, not so much the public sector, but definitely private, for having an asset that will be valuable in 15, 20, 25 years' time. Have you seen anything? Uh, yeah, so we, we were just speaking earlier just about the, the CREM tool, I suppose, that a, a, lot of the, a lot of the property managers are using in Ireland at the minute. So the CREM tool will kind of relate exactly to that. So they're kind of, they're going in and they're, this is popping out saying that thing that was beautiful 10, min or 10 years ago was now going to be a stranded asset by 2028. So yeah, it, it is a really good point and they're the ones... A lot of them, when they promote it, it kind of shows that it's kind of all of a sudden we've become really altruistic, but you always know there's money at the back of it. But, um, yeah, no, look, it's, it, it is a really important thing, and it feeds into that whole point again. The money appears when it has to. I suppose is, a, is one way of putting. So I think that's a good a good point to wrap up. I, probably, I can see questions here on my screen, but we haven't had time. Apologies to kind of get onto questions coming from the online. Um, so yeah, thank you, gentlemen, um, and thank you everybody for uh, attending today. It's been a good. We could talk about hours for this. Um, and if you're still listening, remember to join Zero because it's awesome, and listen to my podcast. That's also awesome as well. And maybe we should do a podcast session on ESG. Ah, you see. So thank you very much, and have a and now let's go and have some Guinness. Guinness. Guinness for Guinness for all. Guinness for all. Thank you very much. So there we have it. Maybe we didn't come to a definitive answer on who would pay for it, but I think it really explored the challenges that we're having and uh, brought up some really interesting arguments from the different parts of the industry on what our approach is going to be. It was one of those questions, obviously I touched on it uh, during the talk and just want to kind of repeat it again. It was one of those questions which I really didn't answer very well personally myself when I was on a panel. I was sick at the time and I guess I wasn't really expecting the question to be directed at myself um, in first instance um, and it kind of made me really think about this uh, as a thing and kind of gave me some soul searching on what we should do so I'm really glad that I asked that question again and I think it's one of those questions which I think is going to keep cropping up and I think it's a question that I'm going to keep asking Zero Constructors are going to keep asking at panels at events because I think it's it's it is the crux of the matter um, and that kind of brings me on quite nicely to talk about finance and that is right now uh, if you're listening uh, at the end of 2023 maybe beginning of 2024 um, you hopefully are aware of Zero's playbook which is the online knowledge base free to access for anybody um, where you can learn about the low-hanging fruits of lowering carbon in construction right now we are writing creating collecting knowledge around finance as an instrument to create impact and we invite you or anybody really who is interested you don't have to be an expert you can just come and learn um, to give input onto this subject um, i find it one of the most fascinating subjects um, it's interesting because a lot of people get really excited about all the modeling stuff and the data stuff and the design stuff but actually i think is finance is one of the biggest levers that we have to pull on the way in which we finance projects and the way in which we think about uh, our purchasing processes uh, to bring materials into site um, and 
using that power uh, to lower the carbon in uh, construction. So come and check that out. Um, there's so much going on right now, but the easiest way is to make sure that you are a member of zeroconstruct.com um, and become a member. You will get newsletters and emails and invites and uh, join the WhatsApp group. Uh, just check your spam folder every so often. We've had a couple of reports lately that we have had some emails go uh, to spam. Uh, so please do check that. We've got some great episodes coming. Uh, we've also got some great more episodes to re record. If you're interested in uh, supporting us uh, through either sponsoring this podcast and or maybe you think you have some ideas on guests and conversations you would like us to cover. And if so, please contact us at podcasts at zeroconstruct.com and we'll pick those up and we'll get back to everybody. In the meantime, have a great rest of the week wherever you are are or the great beginning of the week if it is a monday and uh, we hope to hear from you soon thank you very much so i'm sorry for the harm we've done and i won't give up the fight because our swan song is Selfish one, and we're running out of time.